Happy Monday morning to you all post midterms. We're very excited to be with you. Just to let you know, this week we are back to our regular Theo schedule. Back to section on Wednesday. Please bring N.T. Wright, Simply Jesus. Having read up to the point on the schedule where you are to have read for you will discuss the book in the section. That's right. And we that'll be super fun. Yes. We want to give a quick shout out to the women's basketball team who made the Sweet 16. Yes, yeah. very exciting. We know some of your classmates are traveling right now. Uh, so go Bruins. Uh, we're very excited. We know that they're listening um, via the podcast as well. Reminder. Um, you can do that. Reminder to listen to the podcast if you're ever not here. Way to go, women's basketball. Yes. We love you. Um, I also want to mention, we had mentioned to you once before, it seemed to be a joke at the time, though it was not, that in fact, if it turned out, and we have no indication that this will be the case, but if it turned out that this class had to finish online, like if uh, campuses were closed and so on because of the virus issue, we're totally finishing Theo, we have a plan to do it, and we think it would actually work pretty well. Like, how, how would yes. we do that if we had to meet without meeting here? Well, how would we do that? a sampling would, it would you would basically get the lecture via video, so that would remain unchanged. It's not as great as being in real life in person, but we would provide videos, we would pr provide an opportunity for you to respond uh, like you do for the reaction papers, probably in the form of an online quiz via Foxtail. We'd give you lots of instructions on how to do that. Um, we would also include the panels and debates as normal. So you would receive all of the same content and you would be given opportunities to respond. So we don't want you to worry. You will finish this course. We will be there with you. I was watching World War Z on cable TV multiple uh -oh. times this weekend. Uh -oh. should, I, should I have been doing that? Was that a mistake? That is not my favorite of the zombie apocalypse genre. You know what? I'm kind of a walking dead I'll tell you why person. I like it. It's so watchable. And there's never any, like, real threat. Because you know Brad Pitt. He is never going to die. Ever. Yeah, that's, that's what makes it not fun. Because, but on The Walking Dead, like, anyone could die at any but point. But that's why I like it. Because I know what's going to happen. And I've already seen it, like, 18 times. I think this basically explains both of our personalities yeah, in I a nutshell. So. Yeah, I think it does. Okay, so be safe out there. Speaking of coronavirus. <laughs> be safe out there. <laughs> Speaking of coronavirus and our sound people. Video people, go ahead. Let's do the big reveal. Bring our lecturer up our this guest. week, Dr. Graydon Zorzi. Whoa, oh, there he is. He, now look, he is in New York City where he is trapped because of coronavirus flight cancellations where he was doing business with his whole family there. They can't fly with his kids. They can't fly with his wife. He's basically, the reason he's in an office building like that is because that's where people are hiding in World War Z. Yeah. Is that not true? See, he's not denying it. He didn't deny it. It's true. But he cares so much about you, you fine students, that he is going to be delivering his lecture on Eastern Daylight Time in New York City. It's about 2 p.m. out there. We know, just, just so you know, like we know that someone doing a lecture on video is not as engaging as in person, but we decided to go with it because we have faith that you all can like buckle down, pay attention make this work, okay? So we're gonna do it. If it turns out, now this is like a contingency and it'll add a, a nervous, fun energy to the class. It will, for me especially. It, if it turns out that if anything goes wrong with the sound or anything goes wrong with the video, Dr. Zorzi knows he's gonna be cut off and Dr. Payne is gonna come up mid-sentence 
and finish the lecture from wherever he is. Yep. Like we're prepared to do that. Yep. So this is happening. It's gonna be great. No matter what, and will be a test of our flexibility and our coronavirus preparedness plan. Yeah, so pray that the technology holds up for me. I'd like to see a tag team personally. Maybe maybe yeah. I'm getting into the disaster a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's like WWF like except for with theology. Hey, we have a new phrase in the creed this week that we're introducing. And, we're, and you know what? We're almost done with the creed. We only have a couple of phrases left. And the phrase that we're going to be stalling out on just a little bit is this phrase, the communion of saints. The communion of saints. And that is our phrase this week. Are we saints? Who, who is a saint exactly, and how will we be in communion? Dr. Zorzi's going to tell us. Oh, uh, we're so excited. We're this super is excited. Dr. Zorzi's second lecture for us. You might remember him from last fall, talking about faith and rationality and, on, and so many other things. So we're excited to have him here. Um, before we introduce him formally, Dr. Zorzi, are you ready? I'm ready. Oh, he's ready. He's so ready. He was born ready. He was born ready. Let's recite the creed together up to where we are, and then welcome Dr. Zorzi. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Without further ado, please welcome Dr. Graydon Zorzi. All right, let's pray first. Lord, thank you for this time to be together. Pray that you would uh, be with all of us. Pray especially for everybody um, who's affected by this virus, if they're stuck on uh, cruise ships or um, if they're uh, being self-quarantining, we pray especially for uh, the elderly and the sick among us and ask for protection. I know a lot of us have um, relatives, even if we ourselves aren't in any risk categories, there are people who are potentially threatened. And we just pray that this would all end up being uh, uh, much ado about not very much and uh, that you would protect us all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now I want to get into the content, but we got to do safety first. Everybody get out your hand sanitizer. First thing we got to do, I know you guys are over here and I'm over there, but I don't know what kinds of things can get transferred through these airwaves. So, I mean, we've got to, you got to sanitize first. This is, um, this is precious material over here. We actually have checked like five different targets and stuff. You can't get anything. You can't get sanitizer. You can't get wipes. It is so, so serious out here. Um, my, my mom sent me her words in her text message. I asked her how she was doing. She said she's self-quarantining. She hasn't seen her grandkids for three weeks. Uh, and she keeps ordering food, like adding bricks to a wall. Keeps ordering food, like adding bricks to a wall. So, uh, it's getting serious out here, but, um, hopefully it's not actually all that serious and everybody will be just fine. Today, we have a very, um, interesting, exciting topic to talk about, and that is the communion of the saints. And it's a fun thing to talk about because uh, we've got these two concepts, saints and communion. And actually, one of them is relatively straightforward, the saints one. So I want to start with that, and then we're going to spend most of our time talking about communion. I'll, I'll explain why. So what do we mean when we say saints? By saints, we just mean Christians. Um, 
you can see this all over the Bible, like in Colossians 1, 2, uh, Paul writes, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So a saint is a holy one, and the idea is that everybody who has been united to Christ is made holy by Christ. So you are a saint because you are a Christian. If you're really a Christian, you're really a saint. Now, if we're talking then about communion of the saints, that becomes interesting because communion is about unity. So when we say that there's, we believe in the communion of the saints, we're saying that we believe there is unity between Christians. Now, what kind of unity do we have between Christians? I mean, I look around me and I see a lot of disunity between Christians, right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that the case? And I mean, so it's it really important to think about what kind of unity we're talking about. Do we mean that everybody's supposed to be part of the same denomination, right? Like, are we all supposed to be Catholic? Or are we all supposed to be Baptist or whatever? What do we mean by that? If we mean that, then there's a problem because obviously we're not. Like, what, what, kind, of community, what kind of communion are we supposed to have? And how do we know if we have it? Um, and what are we saying when we say we believe it? Because we really, if we're really affirming these things, we really want to know that we actually believe them and that they're actually true. So Jesus talked about, about the unity that he expected to come about between his uh, people. And so here's what I want to do. I want to first talk about the kind of communion that Jesus um, expected for us, that Christians should have. Uh, and we're going to say that that's spiritual unity. I'll explain that in one second. So we're going to talk about the kind of unity, the kind of communion that we're supposed to have. And then we're going to look at a particular moment in the history of the church as part of this history boot camp that we're doing. We're going to look at this particular moment, a time in which there's great division in the church. So it's going to be a fantastic moment to look at, to talk about communion and about unity, because we're going to say, well, look, if you can see the communion of the saints, even at this moment of incredible division, then obviously we can believe in the communion of the saints now and wholeheartedly affirm that, see why it's really essential that we do affirm that, why it deserves to be right there along with I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that moment is the Reformation. That moment is the Reformation that we're talking about, the Protestant Reformation, um, 16th century, when we have this huge split away from the Roman Catholic Church and we get the start of all these Protestant churches, um, origins of uh, most of the denominations that many of us are part of. Uh, so we're talking about the communion of the saints and then how it works out in the Protestant Reformation. To do that, I want to start, as I said, first with what kind of unity we're looking for. And it's not, it's not meant to be organizational unity. It's not meant to be that we are all part of the exact same denomination under the exact same authority where you have you know, my pastor reports to this bishop and that bishop reports to that, um, that other bishop and they all report to the Pope and everybody's part of the same singular organization with human authority that, that links us all up. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. Let's look at this um, when Jesus talks about unity. This is most famously in what's called the high priestly prayer. Um, and I want to read you a little bit from this. This is in John 17. Jesus says in John 17, verse 11, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the kind of unity that Christ wants for his church is the kind of unity that Christ has with the Father. Well, what kind of unity does Christ have with the Father? I mean, it's not like there's this, this organizational thing where you've got, you know, you go to the same meetings or something like that. It's much deeper than that. 
It's much realer than that. The community, the union that he's talking about is the union of Father, Son, and Spirit. The union of Father and Son through the Holy Spirit. This connection between the Trinity. And that's the kind of union, the kind of communion that Christ expects for his church. He prays later in John 17, he's praying for his church. And he says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. That's John 17, 21. And then in the next verses, he prays that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is spiritual union. It is real spiritual union that's supposed to come about between Christians. Just, just as I said that we are called saints, right? We're called saints because we, if we're in Christ, we're made holy by Christ. Well, this in the same way, if we're in Christ, we are made one in Christ. And the Bible uses a really important image to help us understand what this looks like, and that is the body. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. Though, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are all one body, and Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the church. And we're, as long as we're united to Christ, we're united to one another. We may not go to the same meetings. We may not worship at the same church. We may not agree on absolutely every point of doctrine. That doesn't matter. The point is, are we united in Christ? If we're united in Christ, if I'm really in Christ, if I'm really united to him by the Holy Spirit, and so are you, then we're in communion with one another. This is what we're talking about with the community of the saints. Now, how do we see that communion on display even when there's division in the church? Because if there's a real union, what, what does that mean? I mean, you don't want to say, well, there's a real union, but then there's all this crazy division, and so union's totally invisible. I mean, you want there to be some sort of visit, something about the union that's real, that really works its way out. And um, we can see the reality of the union, even when division is at its worst, even when division is at its most serious, when people are, are, are at odds with one another. And we see that in the Protestant Reformation. So I want to talk about the Protestant Reformation in the context of this idea of the communion of the saints. So you got to um, uh, put down on the table or put a little pin in the idea of us all being united in Christ and this whole idea of spiritual unity and the fact that that's what we're really talking about. It's not so much organizational unity. And then let's go talk about the Protestant Reformation. So come with me. Let's go. Let's travel back in time. Let's talk, go back to the year 1500. And I want to talk first about the state of the Roman Catholic Church in the year 1500. So the Roman Catholic Church, this is the late medieval era. And the Roman Catholic Church was super wealthy so wealthy and so powerful. And the reasons that the Roman Catholic Church were wealth, was wealthy and powerful were actually legitimate reasons. In fact, Europe, over this, this period of a thousand years, between 500 and 1500, had, had experienced an incredible cultural, technological, economic, scientific boom. Um, they had uh, founding universities and developing all sorts of new methods for um, organizing, uh, organizing economic systems. Um, we had the Magna Carta, which some of you have heard of. Uh, the Magna Carta signed in 1215 uh, is this document that the, um, that the nobles and the people of England imposed on the king to set limitations on political power. So when people look back in history and they try to see where the 
the foundations of this, this idea of limited government that we have in America and all, all throughout the world now. It's so important that people shouldn't be able to do just anything just because they have political power. And they try to say, where are the big moments where, um, where this, this, this idea of limitations on political authority, what are those big moments? The Magna Carta is a hilltop moment. When you look at, you uh, could say something else about education. When we look at um, science and education, you look back to the founding of these modern universities. Um, the University of Oxford, Oxford was founded in 1096, 1096, right in the middle of this period of Catholic dominance over Europe. Um, and um, so the Catholic Church uh, was at the center of all of these developments, all this incredible growth of wealth and power. And in some ways that was good, but in other ways, it wasn't quite as because if you have a lot of money and power in the church, you're going to get corruption. And there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of corruption in the Catholic Church. Um, you know, sometimes bishops seemed more interested in wealth and status than they did in taking care of souls. Some popes seemed more like... Um, more like they cared about political power and increasing their own control over kingdoms and vast swaths of humanity than they did about um, bringing people before Christ's throne and taking care of them. And by the year 1500, which is sort of a, a, an artificial date, but a reasonable place to set um, the close of the medieval era and the beginning of this sort of reformation and early modern period, by that time, there was a, a broad sense that there was a need for reform. But the problems in the Roman Catholic Church went much deeper than this corruption. There was also a much more significant problem, um, and that was a problem about doctrine, a problem about, about the actual teachings of the church. And there were several aspects to this, but the most important one was a confusion about the gospel itself. And some of these points about this, this confusion about the gospel remaining points of contention between Protestants and Catholics. So this isn't just history. This is live, real theological questions that are at issue between Christians. Um, and, uh, and it's very important to understand them. So think about this. Here's, here's how Roman Catholics understand salvation. This is how they understood it back in 1500. This is still how they understand it. It's faith plus works get you salvation. Faith plus works get you salvation. And here's how it works. You get into the church through faith. Christ's merits get you into the church. You don't have to be a special person to get into the church. You don't have to do anything else. But once you're in the club, now you need good works to earn your salvation, right? So your works, the, the technical term is meritorious. Your works are meritorious. You merit salvation through the works that you perform after you're baptized into the church. And this idea led to this whole system of penitence, like being sorry for sins and doing things to make up for your sins, and purgatory, which is this idea of a sort of holding place between heaven and hell that you go to for some unspecified period of time, potentially. So let me explain that system to you, because this is very critical to understanding what the reformers were talking about. And it's all going to connect back to the communion of the saints, because what's at issue here is in what sense are all communion, all Christians united? And this idea of being united to Christ is going to play into these exact doctrines. So stay with me. All right. So here's the idea behind penitence and purgatory. 
And you probably are curious about this anyway. You probably heard about purgatory. So here's the idea. If, let's say you're a Christian. You've been baptized. You're a good Catholic. If you sin, you're not going to go to hell. Christ's merits have wiped out the eternal consequences of your sin. So there are no eternal consequences. But there could still be temporal consequences, temporary consequences. To get rid of those temporary consequences of your sins, what you need to do is penitence. So you need to confess to your priest. You need to say some certain prayers a certain number of times, maybe do some other good works. And if you don't make up for all your sins, what you're going to have to do is spend time in purgatory, which is a place of suffering. It's not pleasant. And you could be there for years or centuries or millennia. It's very hard to know how to measure time once we're in a place like purgatory. Now, you could do penitence and make up for all your own sins, but you also can get indulgences. This is another option. You can get an indulgence. You can get an indulgence from the church to help clear your record. And it's kind of like a bank account. That's how you should think about it. So you convert into the church, and that sort of wipes your slate clean. Like you're now back at a zero balance, right? You're not in debt, but you don't have it really have any merit. And now you start doing good works, but now, but if you've also sinned. And if you sin, now your debt goes, now you're, you go negative. And you can do good works to bring yourself back up to even or maybe even positive. Or you can get an indulgence from the church. You can draw on the treasury of merit stored up by all the saints and all the Christians throughout church history. You draw on that treasury of merit, and that can clear your record. Well, how do you get an indulgence? The Catholic Church still very much teaches indulgences. It's absolutely still part of Catholic doctrine. The way you get an indulgence today is by doing a lot of the same things that you do for penitence. You pray a certain set number of prayers. Um, you engage in good works. There are certain things you can do to get an indulgence. At the time of the Reformation, though, back in 1500, there was a practice of selling indulgences. Um, there was a guy, famously, there was a guy named John Tetzel. This was a, a German priest, um, Roman Catholic priest, who the reformer Martin Luther uh, supposedly heard uh, preaching. And Tetzel had this famous line, goes, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as the coin in the coffer, so like in the cup, throw your coin into my cup, the soul's going to get free from purgatory. The idea is the church has all of this merit stored up. And you have all these loved ones who have died, and they're suffering in purgatory. Just pay me your money. Just pay me money, and as soon as you pay money, you'll be buying an indulgence, and then your, your loved ones are going to get out of purgatory. People were scandalized by this practice. They thought this was a terrible idea. Um, and the Reformation was partially um, set off by this, uh, this terrible practice. But the, the practice is built on the back of this whole system of penitence and purgatory. So even though the practice of selling indulgences has gone away, it still is significant to think about um, this, this remaining issue uh, between Protestants and Catholics over the system of penitence and purgatory. And that issue is right at the heart of the Reformation. So we've seen these problems in the Roman Catholic Church. We've got the, um, the issues of corruption and then also these doctrinal issues, especially around um, salvation, around grace, faith, and works. And in response to these problems, we get the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation 
really gets going with one guy. There are a lot of movements toward reform before this one guy, but you really have one guy, a trickle of water that breaks the dam, and that's Martin Luther. So I got to talk to you about Martin. And Martin Luther is a colorful, colorful guy. When everybody gets out of here, you can't do it right now because you can't get out your phones. When everyone gets out of here, the first thing you should do is go on to Google and search Luther Insulter, Luther Insulter. And you'll find that people have cataloged all of the insults that Luther wrote in all of his published works against all of his opponents. And they are hilarious. And you can just hit insult me again, insult me again, insult me again. And you can sit there for however long you want. It will just come up with absurd over-the-top insult after insult after insult after insult. This guy, Luther, was a colorful, colorful, hilarious uh, individual. Um, also a, uh, a very serious theologian and a very serious lover of Christ. And his story is really interesting. He um, was training to be an attorney. His, his, he was training to be a lawyer. Um, and he was traveling and at one point and got caught in a terrible storm, got caught in this really, really serious storm. And he prayed to God, God, rescue me from this storm. If you rescue me, I will devote my life to you by becoming a monk. He lives through the storm. He devotes his life to him by becoming a monk, by becoming a monk. And I love that story because I actually went through a similar thing. I was a convert. And um, the first time I ever really reached out to God, I was caught in a storm and I was really scared. I couldn't see, I was driving. I couldn't even see the road. I was, ter- I was scared. And I remember praying. I was like 16 years old. I was like, Lord, re-, I was like, God, I didn't believe in God. But I was like, God, rescue me out of this and I will devote my life to you. Now I was rescued out of that storm. Immediately forgot about that promise. I did not remember that for a second uh, until later. I actually did convert a few years later. And then I remembered I was like, wow, I guess God helped me to that promise after all. Um, but so I identify with Luther through that story. So Luther became a monk. He became a monk. And as a monk, he was really struggling. He was struggling with this exact system of penitence and purgatory that we've been talking about. And here's what his struggle was. He's, he, he understood his own sinfulness. Day after day would go by and he would reflect on the things that he did um, and the thoughts that he had and his desires. And he would realize, like, I am not earning anything. There is no like eternal blessing that you could possibly say that I'm earning. I'm, I'm living out of giving my whole life to God to live as a monk. All I'm doing is reading the Bible and praying and doing and working and just trying to help people. And yet I know my heart is a factory of, of idols. It's an, it's just, it's sinful. There's, I'm not, this isn't working for me. And he, he would go to confession again and again and again. And uh, his, the priest who confessed to started telling him, Luther, like, don't come back until you've done something serious. Like, go do some serious sin before you talk to me again. Stop coming and talking to me. But Luther was just struggling. And he actually even grew to hate God. He started to view God timely as an enemy who was imposing this burden on him. And Luther writes about this struggle. And he especially um, got stuck with this one verse in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 goes, the righteous shall live by faith. And I want to read you what Luther realized about this, this verse. This is him reflecting on it. He says, night and day I ponder, turned over this verse, wrestling with it, until I grasp the truth 
that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Luther had been reading this verse, the righteous shall live by faith, and he thought, I don't get it, because the righteousness of God, that's God's justice as he um, condemns the wicked. That's the righteousness of God. That's how Luther thought about it. So when he read the righteousness shall live by faith, he was like, how are you living by faith? Righteousness of God is about condemnation. Where do you get the righteousness of God where you're living by faith? I don't even I don't even understand until he realized that the righteousness being talked about here is the righteousness of God whereby he justifies us. And Luther writes, thereby I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before um, the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This message of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. So he realized that the righteousness Paul is talking about is Christ's righteousness that is given to us when we are united to him in the Holy Spirit by faith. When we step in to that communion of the saints, when we become a saint, when you truly become a saint, when you are saved, you enter this communion because you enter unity with Christ. And when you're united to Christ, God looks on you as if you were Christ. He looks on you in the same way that he looked on Christ. Remember um, God saying to uh, the, 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 when Christ is baptized, the, the clouds open and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and God the Father speaks forth from heaven. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That is how God looks at each and every one of his saints because of the righteousness of Christ. It's not that we have to earn some merit in order to be, um, to be viewed uh, um, positively by God. No, we have Christ's righteousness. And when Luther realized that, it became, like he said, a gateway into heaven. I just want to illustrate. I have a couple more things to do, but I want to illustrate that really quickly. Um, there's this, uh, some of you may know John Bunyan. John Bunyan um, wrote Pilgrim's Prog Progress. He's a, he's a Protestant. Um, writing uh, years after Luther, uh, and he wrote a number of really interesting books. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. It's really fun. It's a lot like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis really liked John Bunyan. Um, but Bunyan had a similar experience to Luther where he was struggling with his conscience. And he was riding along on his horse, because uh, obviously it's, you know, olden times. You got horses. You ride horses places. What are you going to do? So he's riding on his horse, and he's thinking about... Um, about uh, his sinfulness. And he's thinking like, you know, if God were to ask me, you know, where is your righteousness? Or if someone, were to, someone else would ask me, if anyone would ask me, what, what makes you righteous? What makes you right with God? Where is your claim to be so, uh, so acceptable to God? So, um, so holy, where is your claim to that? And Bunyan, he was riding along, it was a beautiful day, and he looked up at the clouds and he thought, he realized, that's where my righteousness is. My righteousness is in heaven because my righteousness is Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is my righteousness. Nothing I do here can mess with that in any way because my righteousness is in heaven with Christ where I am united to him by the Holy Spirit, and that is where my righteousness is, seated at the right hand. 
you know, if you understand the, uh, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone that Luther, um, that Luther came to realize, then you'll recognize that it makes sense in Romans when Paul's talking about salvation by grace, and then he goes, well, um, what then shall we say? Should we keep sinning so that grace may increase, right? He's saying, like, if you understand how radical grace is, you should be led to the question, should we just then start sinning? Because grace is amazing. Christ forgiven. Christ died once for, to forgive me for all my sins, past and future. So should I just sin? Does, does it not even matter? And Paul says, of course not. We shouldn't sin. But if you're not led to that question, have you really understood grace? If you're not led to that question, have you really understood grace? Luther wasn't led to that question by the system of penitence and purgatory. Never would have been led to that question of, of well, if grace is so amazing, why should we keep on sinning? He didn't view grace as amazing. He viewed God as a tyrant. And so this is one of the problems with uh, Roman Catholic teaching that, that Protestants um, dealt with. And like I said, Luther becomes this, this, this trickle of water that breaks the dam. And you have after Luther um, a whole series of people leaving the Catholic Church and starting other churches. And Luther, by the way, didn't even want to leave the church. He was trying to bring about reform within the church. He starts publishing things critical of church teaching and practice. He's put on trial, kicked out of the church, um, and, and that, that split ends up being the split because he starts a new church, and that's what ends up being the split that brings about Protestantism. So we have all of these reformers who follow Luther, all sorts of Protestant churches, and they're united. The reformers are united by what's what are called the three sole of the Reformation, the three sole. That's sola fide, sola gratia, and sola scriptura. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. I've already been talking about these first two, grace alone and faith alone. The idea is that it's faith over works and grace over merits. Remember the Catholic position. Christ's merit gets you into the church, but then once you're in, you got to earn it. you got to earn your salvation once you're in. And the Protestant position is that you're absolutely going to do good works. All Christians should and have to and will. But works are an evidence and a result of faith. Because if you've actually been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, you're part of the communion of saints. And you've been truly changed because you truly are united to Christ. You were off on your own, running away from God, this separate, this separate individual, not the way you were created to be. You were always created for communion with God. You were created for the communion of the saints. It's what we're made for, is to be in communion with one another and with God. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, what we are designed for is to enjoy God and one another in God. That's the communion of the saints. That's what we're designed for. It's what we're made for. It's what your soul cries out for. And once you enter into that communion, because you've been united to Christ, of course your life will change. Of course you'll have good works as a result of that. As an outflowing of joy, as a result of being free from sin, which hurts even though it seems to promise pleasure. Now, I want to um, address one issue, one potential question that people often have about, um, about faith and works, and that's the question of James. Because the book of James, um, in James 2.24, says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if you go talk to your Catholic friends and say, well, you know, I just heard this great lecture, 
on the communion of saints and how we become saints and enter into this communion with other people because we are united to Christ and we're all united to Christ. So we're all part of this communion. Isn't that amazing? You're saved by faith, united to Christ by faith. They'll be like, well, saved by faith alone. I mean, doesn't James say a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? The answer to that is you got to look at the context. Got to always, always you have to look at the context. What is, what is he talking about? So here's the context. James is talking about faith here, using that term faith in this particular context to talk about a belief in Christ or a belief in God, I should say, not in Christ, a belief in the existence of God that doesn't lead to change. He says, even the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19. So this is, a, this is the type of belief that demons have. They recognize that God's real, but it doesn't do anything to them. That's not the kind of faith that saves. That's a dead faith. And in fact, James describes it that way. He says, faith apart from works is dead. That's James 2.26. The kind of faith that we're talking about, that Luther was talking about, is not just acknowledgement of facts about reality. It's trusting Christ, entrusting yourself to Christ. Luther said that by faith, the soul firmly trusts the promises of God, consents to God's will, allows itself to be treated according to God's good pleasure, is obedient to God in all things. If you're going to entrust yourself to Christ, that means you're accepting him as your Lord and Savior. And that's why in Romans, it says that, uh, sorry, in 1 Corinthians, it says no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The only way you're going to be able to say Jesus is, is Lord and really mean that Jesus is your Lord, that you are willing to entirely trust him, is if you have entrusted yourself to him. And that is by faith, and that comes about through grace, where you are united to Christ in the Holy Spirit, and you enter into this community of the saints. And once you're in that community of the saints, you're part of the body of the church, and Christ is your head, so of course he's your Lord. So you see how it all connects up. Faith unites us to Christ. It's like marriage vows. Like it says in Ephesians, this idea that we are wedded to Christ. Now, I talked about sola fide, sola gratia. Sola scriptura is the third one, and that one is critical too, because that's about authority. And the Reformation was also about authority. And it goes again back to this question of, of in what sense are Christians united to one another? Are we united by the common authority of the Pope? The Reformers said no. We're united by the common authority of Scripture. And Luther and the other reformers talked about the right that each person has to interpret scripture. And alongside that right, the reason we have that right to interpret scripture is that we have a duty to do it. You have a weight, each one of you has a weighty responsibility to read and understand scripture. If we are united in Christ, Christ is the word of God, like it says in John, Gospel of John chapter 1. Well, the Bible is the word of God, and you have a responsibility to handle the word of God rightly. It's a weighty responsibility. You can't just say it means anything. You need that Wesleyan quadrilateral that Leah introduced to us last semester, right? You need not only scripture, you need scripture. That's the rule. That's the authority. But you need experience. You need reason, and you need tradition to help you interpret scripture because it's such a serious responsibility. You can't hide behind tradition, but you need tradition. You can't hide behind the authority of the Pope and avoid the responsibility of thinking for yourself, but you do need this, uh, the, the authority of the church and the traditions of the church to help you to understand scripture. You can't cut yourself off from it because you're part of the communion. 
If you're a Christian, you are part of the communion of the saints, and you're meant to be linked into all of this. So what should we then say about divisions in the church? Well, we should be sad if Christians are in conflict with each other. We should be sad about that. Because spiritual unity should lead to harmony. If we're united in Christ, we should be in harmony with one another. So we should be sad about divisions and conflict, fight, infighting among Christians. That is a sad thing, but it's not necessarily a surprising thing. Because look, I mean, we said we're united to Christ by faith. That happens in a moment, but what it leads to is sanctification, is moral progress that happens over time. And if moral progress happens over time, then we know we're all a bunch of sinners. We are still all relying on grace. If you get a bunch of sinners together, we're going to fight. We're going to have conflict. So the fact that there is conflict in the church should not surprise us. We can be in communion with one another in Christ, and that can be real and true and can lead to coordinated harmony and wonderful things and people working together. But at the same time, we can be in communion with one another in Christ and still at odds with one another because of our own sinfulness. Because even though we are truly united to Christ, we're only made like him morally over time. So don't see people fighting around you and go, I don't know if I can believe in the communion of the saints. No, no, no. It's not like that. You should be sad about the fighting, but you can still wholeheartedly affirm the communion of the saints and the importance of it. So the question I want to leave you with is, um, is whether you are part of this communion, whether you are part of this communion. And think about it, because this, this communion of the saints is all, about, is all about whether unity is possible with freedom. Because you can only believe in the, unit, the communion of the saints if you think that we can be united to one another and God can shepherd us through all of our mess. Can you trust him to unite you to Christ and to shepherd you through all of this mess around us? And know that, no, it may not seem like it all the time, but you are a part of the body of Christ, accomplishing something great in the world that isn't necessarily visible at every moment. There's an amazing uh, line from one of my favorite philosophers, Alexis de Tocqueville, that captures this idea of, of unity um, and freedom going together. And I want to end with this one line. So we're going to end with this, and then I'll pray for us. To encourage endless variety of actions, all sorts of endless, endless variety, but to bring them about so that in a thousand different ways, all of those various crazy different actions in every different way all tend toward the fulfillment of one grand design. Unity within freedom. Order, even though it appears chaotic. That is a God-given idea. Lord, thank you for this time together. Pray that you would bless all of us and help us. We trust you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dr. Zorzi. Thank you. Thank you.